Hi, Tim Riley again. Happy holidays, everybody. Um, this is a interview from 2008, and Scott Woods from RockCritics.com asked me to come on and talk about the Beatle bibliography. Um, and it's curious to listen to, after all these years, so many years, because, um, you know, even though Mark Lewison is not here and I had not yet finished my Lennon biography, it's very curious to hear how well all of these ideas from all these other books hold up, even though some of them have already been um, overtaken by some more recent scholarship. So more good stuff in the pipeline for 2023. Best everybody hang in there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Scott Woods from rockcritics.com. I'm chatting this evening with Tim Riley, the author of a book I've often raved about called Tell Me Why, The Beatles, Album by Album, Song by Song, The 60s and After. Tell Me Why does a terrific job mixing detailed musical analysis of the Beatles songs with astute commentary about how their music communicated and continues to communicate to different audiences. Tim has also written books on Dylan and gender and pop music, and is currently at work on a John Lennon biography. Tonight, we're going to focus specifically on the Beatles. In particular, I have asked him to compile a list of some of his favorite Beatles books, and we're just going to run through that list together. How are you doing, Tim? I'm good. How are you, Scott? Excellent, excellent. So you've um, sent me a list of Beatles books, and obviously we're going to go through each of those titles uh, individually. So what was your um, criteria for choosing the books before we get to the list? Well, um, I just wanted to choose the books that I was going to have the most fun talking about. So these are the books that I admired most, that I found most useful, and that I thought were, you know, the kind of books that um, the, the, people, the people who I talk with regularly about the Beatles and the people who, you know, who are sort of plugged into a certain level of, of what's going on in scholarship are the ones that I, I find myself recommending the most if people haven't read them. Okay. And they're, and they're pretty, um, I don't know, some of them seem to me pretty obvious, but some of them aren't that well known. So yeah, I would agree with that. Fun definitely. To, you know, fun to talk about a few of them because they're kind of obscure. Yeah, I think you've got a good mixture of obscure and, uh, as you say, the you know kind of obvious ones. And, and why wouldn't you have some obvious ones if they're worthwhile? So anyway, so let's look at uh, the list, the one you've listed at the top. And I know you didn't uh, put these in any particular order, but I was glad to see it on there, was Revolution in the Head by Ian MacDonald. And just as... Uh, way of a little bit of an introduction. I am familiar with this one. Um, I have read it. I read it uh, not too long after I read yours, actually. Uh, I think his came out several years or a few years anyway after yours did, but I discovered them somewhat around the same time. And they're similar in format in that you both, um, you know, do basically a song-by-song exploration of the Beatles catalog. So, um, you know, before I have any sort of thoughts on that, just uh, what was your reason for choosing that one? Well, I, I just think it's just, uh, you know, a very thoughtful and thorough treatment of the entire catalog. And um, he's one of these guys who was there at the time, and it was a defining period for him, and he sort of came of age to the band. And that's because it's a large coming-of-age story that the band tells. I think for a lot of people it was, it was an especially defining and, um, you know, Powerful. It was a powerful experience to go through growing up and having those records coming out. Right. And and he's British, so he he offers the British perspective, and there is this tension between the American and the British perspective that you sort of become aware of as you wade into this stuff. And I just really like. I mean, he's just an expert writer, and he's a he's a demanding writer. His ideas are really strong, and he really he brings you into the music in a in a in a, a resting way. It's a very very powerful command of the language he has, and he works with really solid ideas. I just I can't say enough about the book. I reread it before I started the Lennon biography, and I was you know impressed again at how much I liked it. I just think he's really just got a great handle on a lot of these ideas. Okay, and I I, I would suggest that I found his book um, unlike yours, and I think you know you you pointed out maybe the difference being that it's from the perspective of someone who was there listening to the records as they were coming out, but I found 
his book sort of struck a, a bit of a, a sort of harsh, almost political tone. I found it um, to be a fairly pessimistic book in spots, um, just in the sense that he, he seems to sort of argue a little bit that, um, you know, pop music never really recovered from the Beatles. And I think he even takes it further to say that Western society itself never really recovered from the 60s, which I think is a compelling argument. Um, but, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't strike me as anything at all like what you're trying to do in yours or what you're saying in your book. Yeah, I think that uh, he and I would probably have disagreed about that. I think that, um, I mean, I don't know. It's For, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't ring pessimistic. It just rings kind of fatalistic. Like, okay. the point of view is this is this is as good as it gets, and we're never going to see their likes again, and um, that it's kind of pointless to look or think or expect. or And I just think that's a... I just don't find that a useful point of view. I just don't find it. Um, to, to me, the richness of the music and all the different places that the Beatles music has led me makes me feel just really grateful that they came along and that they, you know, occurred in my lifetime and that they still inform the way I listen to lots of different music. And um, I know people who have this point of view. I just uh, it just doesn't appeal to me. Um, and he was. I mean, I think we know now. In retrospect, he, you know, he was depressive, and uh, I, you know, I don't, I have, I really don't know anything more about it than that. You, were uh, you ever in contact with him? Never in contact with him. Um, I often, you know, I often thought this, you know, it would be really fun someday to engage with this guy, but um, he took his own life before that, you know, that was even possible. I now know people who who knew him. And uh, I think it was a pretty tragic situation what happened there, but I really don't know anything about it. Right. Okay. Except that I just really admire the book so much. Okay. And a lot of people do. A lot. It's a very insidery kind of book, and a lot of Brits, it'll be on the top of their list. So they love that book. Right. Right. It's it's, it's a very personal book in some ways, as as is yours, I think too. Well, yeah. I think the trick is to try and. I mean, I have this intense personal thing and with the music, and the, the trick is to try and make that relevant to, to lots of different people. So I hope it's not too personal. You're always trying to strike a balance there. But I'm, I, you know, I came of age with all these great rock and roll writers, and they were writing about their own personal experience with the music. And I deliberately tried to back off that approach a little bit because... I think it's very hard to do, and it's very, um, just very, it's just kind of, for me, it felt like a very fragile platform to base your ideas on, and that I really wanted to have all my arrows pointing right at the ideas and the music and not to me. Right, and I guess when I describe your book as personal, um, I, I, I don't think of it necessarily as personal in an exceptionally sort of rock critic-y type of way, where you're constantly sort of, you know, turning back and, and writing about your own life or something like that. Now, you know, there's value in that approach as well, but I don't, I don't think so much that's what you're doing, but I guess more personal in the sense that um, it's very clear, like, just that you have delved into this material about as deeply as you can get. You know, you, you, it sounds like you're writing as a listener. And as a single person, you know, it's a single person's experience listening um, to this immense wealth of music, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, good. That's the goal, really, is to um, to write like a very close listener and to try and engage the reader on that, like to encourage a really close listening from the reader. Um, and, you know, I think of these, I think that we're just sort of in different, the, 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 the approaches to the material we're talking about here are just sort of we're in different camps. And that experiential approach, I think, is good. But, I mean, I, I admire it a lot when it's done well, but it didn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I didn't want to be imposing that on the reader when I felt uncomfortable with it. I felt much more comfortable being a different kind, you know, describing it in a different way. And, you know, I came to it later, really. I mean, I think it was a more honest approach because I was born in 1960, so I did not, for me, it was not like, you know, my first album 
was Abbey Road. So I got to know it all backwards. Uh, And so my experience of it was really different. My experience of it was this collecting all the records and getting to know them sort of backwards and then doing this really interesting calculus in my head, which was, okay, so if this came first, then it must have meant that they, you know, they got to that point by in this manner, you know, and it was sort of an intellectual um, puzzle. Plus, then they they were constantly in for all those records were always very important in the 70s because everyone was kind of playing off of them in different ways. So the bands that I was big on in the 70s, um, they you know the Beatles were always there, sort of like the backdrop and the reference point. So um, I just felt like it was a more I don't want to say honest. I mean, it just felt like like a, like a more natural way for me to go about doing it. Recording the Beatles and Chronicle, and I'm, I'm taking it what what Mark Lewisohn's books are you know are kind of about. Are they're sort of like an ultimate guide to the making of the records, like an inc- packed with incredible amount of detail about what went into each recording. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? Or yeah, he Mark Lewisohn is just a very very important um, scholar over in Britain. Um, because uh, he has been, he's like the only one who has listened to all the master tapes and it came about because he started um, he was he worked at the BBC I think as a librarian and he wrote a book called the Beatles live he actually helped Philip Norman write um, Norman's first Beatle book which is called shout he right. wrote, he was a researcher on that and so he learned a lot about on the Beatles, and he he came as a big Beatle fan and researcher on his own. And this book, The Beatles Live, detailed all of their live gigs and all of their live repertoire, and that had never been done. And it was really kind of a revelation to all of us who were really curious when we started hearing all the BBC takes leak out, because the Beatles' repertoire by 1962, when they signed their recording contract, was just voluminous. I mean, they just they were just the king kings of repertoire. And it was it was a repertoire in a way that really helped us understand how what they prized in rock and roll and how big they uh, conceived rock and roll to be and how ambitious they were and you know what how great what great close attention they were paying to all the good songwriters who were out there um, and so. You know, he detailed all this, and then as a result of this really wonderful Beatles Live book, he got invited, um, you know, after a few years, he got invited by EMI to do this research project called Recording the Beatles, Um, and he sat and listened to all the master tapes. And what Recording the Beatles does is it gives you detail like, okay, on this day they did Day Tripper, and they did 18 takes, and the final track is take six combined with take 11, and they patched in some of take three for the chorus because they, you know there was something they liked about take three. Okay. <laughs> a diagram of how how intensely they worked, and they worked so hard, it's kind of unimaginable how hard they worked day in and day out. And also how finicky and how they grew in the studio, so that you know by the time they they start creating their masterpieces, they are. They are figuring out how to take advantage of every single technical possibility and a few that they're not even aware of. Like they're pushing their producers and engineers constantly. And it's just a very detailed diagram of that process and how much their creativity was was at play with the engineer's creativity. Right. Um, and how, um, how closely they were watching uh, and listening to all the different tracks that they made and... Uh, you know, just how intricate the whole idea of recording became for them um, and, and how they could take, like, the most, you know, the, the breeziest, most nonchalant gesture, and it actually was like a, a knitting together of several days of very, very hard work. Uh, and it just became fascinating to sort of uncover layer by layer all the Beatle tracks that way. And that book came out right 
right after Tell Me Why came out, and it was so frustrating because, you know, I would have just, I could have used that book so much in my research, um, and when we were on parallel paths in a certain way, and uh, he then updated that book and combined it with The Beatles' Life to make this larger book called The Beatles' Chronicle, which is like the daily diary. Right. And it omits some details from the recording sessions, but it gives you like a daily picture of here's what they woke up and did every day. Right. Um, and uh, those are just like the Bible, the Bible of Beatle reference books. Okay. And Lewis is just this very nice guy, very approachable, very smart, very, very solid scholarship. He doesn't get much wrong. Right. And that's really saying. I mean, he really stands out from the pack that way. Listening to your description of this of the books, um, you know, I imagine they're really sort of geared towards people who do want to delve into the fine details of the recordings and, you know, would be able to sort of um, tell the difference, you know, or be interested in the difference between take three and take five of such and such a track. But... You know, it, it, I could imagine some books of that ilk might just be completely alienating for a lot of the audience. Well, you know, you get this debate about whether that's going to impinge on your enjoyment of the music. And I just am not the right person to ask about that. I'm a critic. I really enjoy learning as much as I possibly can about the material. And if I enjoy it, I find that I want to learn everything I can about it. And that the more I learn about it, the more the, the, the richer the experience is for me. There are people who they just really don't want to know. Like, they don't care how the special effect is done in the movie. They just want a nice movie. <clears throat> right. That's fine you know it's like fine okay so criticism is not for them but um i just i just am really of, of a different mindset and uh for me those lewis and books have only enriched my understanding Actually, Devin McKinney's Magic Circles. Um, this is definitely one that's on my list of, of books that I am interested in reading. I, I've, I've seen it in the store. I've read a brief synopsis of it online. It sounds really interesting. Um, what's that one about? This is a book that, I mean, it it really gives me the willies because it's, uh, it's this younger guy. <laughs> okay, so he turns in his very first book, and it's just a really terrific piece of writing. I mean, it's a major statement about the Beatles. And Devin McKinney is a very nice guy, and he grew up, I think, in Nebraska. And he's sort of an autodidact in terms of music criticism. Um, I mean, he, he literally just came out of the blue, and Harvard put this book out, and we were all like, oh, what, what is this? And it turns out to be like one of the really great Beatle books. And he's, in, in pop music terms, he's a generation behind me. So I think he was... I mean, I was born in 1960. I think he was born, you know, in late 60s, like 68 or 70. Okay. So he's coming at it one step behind uh, Ian McDonald or me. And uh, so his approach is really, again, another layer of interest, like discovering the Beatles way after they happened as sort of, you know, like dark history. And, you know, how they opened up his intellectual mind. And, and then the themes that he traces are very, very interesting and peculiar and not themes that anybody else has chased down. He's very good on health, for example, where he writes about how, you know, it's supposed to be a Bond spoof movie. But it's actually about how this death cult is chasing this band. Wow. And then how to, you know, and then... So why do the Beatles inspire these death cults? You know, because you go from that and then in three... Sh Three short years, you get Charlie Manson. Right, right. Uh, and so he makes these very daring, bizarre kind of connections uh, in very interesting ways. And uh, it's just a book that uh, is just steeped in Beatle mythology and Beatle history. And it's 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 just one of the uh, you know one of the you can't put it down. It's just so engaged with the material. Um, I just can't say enough. But I just love that book. I can't wait to reread that book. So 
so I like the idea that he, he um, you know, came came of age a little later and that sort of thing. And I've, I've discussed this with you on a previous occasion, but just about um, younger younger music fans. And, you know, there is sometimes a, a little bit of cynicism about the Beatles. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's going to ever be a point where, or maybe it's already come, where, where, you know, interest in the Beatles will start to wane? Oh, I think it waxes and wanes. Yeah, I think it goes up and down and people have different you know i mean the punkers were really trying to sort of you know swat it away and that's part of what that london calling was about was phony beatlemania's bit in the dust and it was like you know the noise around this band's really distracting and we just don't want to you know we don't want to hear it and i can imagine if you're coming late like that it, it is kind of like, you know, Satchmo or Sinatra or something. It's like there's just so much sort of myth built up around them that it makes it difficult just to encounter the music. And um, I think that's, you know, I mean, I think that's a reasonable response on a certain level. And I certainly had my own, you know, like I went along for years just like refusing to listen to Miles Davis because I just couldn't bear the, you know, the pretension of the guy and the, you know, the cloud that hung over the, all of that stuff. Right. And it just took a long time for me to get inside it and find it on my own terms and figure out, what, you know, what I liked about it and didn't like about it, you know, not caring what anyone else had written about it ever. And there's definitely this problem of, um, you know, the anxiety of influence. I mean, it's, they are sort of so towering, and to sort of pretend they're not is, is just to be sort of weird and ignorant. But you don't, you know, there's a way in which that can get in the way of your experience of the music, and that's, you know, that's not a good thing. So I think that's just a normal kind of problem that you deal with. You know, any playwright is going to have to, you know, immerse themselves in a, in a Shakespeare or a, you know, whoever, whatever it is, and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a tension there between the great admiration and their desire to create something completely different and new and original. And, you know, you sort of just heave aside at a certain point. You're never going to be Shakespeare, and you're never going to be Miles Davis, and you're never going to be the Duke or whatever. But, um, to, to, uh, you know, what, what really does, what really gets me is that people will just wave it off and say, well, I just, you know, I just refuse to take any interest and listen to it. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's just willful ignorance. written by Lenin in his own right and Spaniard in the works. Um, the obvious sort of angle that you, you know, usually see these kind of compared to sort of being James Joycey and wordplay sort of books. Um, I'm also curious if there's any connection you can come up with um, between these and Bob Dylan's Tarantula. Yeah. Well, I think the Joyce comparison is kind of unfortunate because Joyce, I mean, Joyce is, you know, like this towering literary, um, you know, the Irish bard of modernism. And Lenin, Lenin had not read Joyce. And Lenin was intoxicated with wordplay and double entendres and triple entendres and um, inanities and uh, all kinds of weird, you know, language cartoons was really what he was into. And, you know, Joyce... Joyce figured out how to spin that out into very large forms, and Lenin was was not interested in the larger forms, for the most part. And you know, he even spoke kind of disdainfully of the album concept. You know, right? Uh, he always was saying, you know, I just get bored after a couple songs. I just want to hear singles, right? Basically. And it was kind of that way in writing for him too. I mean, you know, his the long pieces in there are five or six pages long. He's really interested in short, rapid bursts, you know, newspaper article type length of things, and shorter. And they're, you know, they're kind of like little pop songs in verse. Uh, 
Uh, although, you know, you can understand why when they, when they came out, people said, ah, James Joyce. So, and, and then the quote that Lenin has was he went out and read James Joyce after he started getting all these comparisons. And you know what he said? He said, oh, it was like finding daddy. <laughs> it's just a bizarre quote, you know, because, um, you know, what he said, he, but, he, but Lenin himself said Joyce could just go on and on and on. He said, I could just never do that. I just could never, like, sustain it. Right? So, so they're not, they're not like Finnegan's Wake or something then? No, 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 no. And he would, I mean, he would really laugh at that. I mean, that's not, you know, he was, he was kind of doodling with words, you know. And, you know, he was like a, a um, you know, a really expert, a really loony doodler, like a doodler with just such great charm and, and charisma that you just can't believe how great some of these just like single line drawings of his are. And that's the way he was as a writer, too, but they're just very, very spare. Okay. And I think they're a lot better than most people think they are. They're definitely a lot better than Tarantula. Okay, how so? Well, I think Tarantula is just kind of a thorny, it's just a thistle of, like, unreadability. I mean, I, I really question how many people have gotten through that book. It just is so thick and so mired in its own grandiose weirdness. And, you know, just like, I mean, I, I, just, I just feel like he just... He just never was seriously sober at all writing that thing, and nobody ever really edited it or read it, um, especially compared to Chronicles Volume 1, which is like this really fabulously entertaining tall tale about my, you know, his life uh, that reads extremely well. Right. I mean, it's almost like they're two different writers. So uh, I, I think Tarantula is, you know, is Dylan deep into, into some kind of fog. And uh, Lennon's much more entertaining, much quicker, fast bites, much more, much more dashing and funny, and I mean, doesn't take himself at all seriously. In fact, seriousness is one of the great targets of all of those pieces, uh, and they're 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 not very well known, and they're really they're very very interesting and revealing about how Lennon's mind works. It's a quicksilver wit. Um, it's very very sharp. Uh, he has great disdain for pomposity and. Um, hypocrisy, and uh, he just sort of nails it whenever he sets pen to paper with it. She says she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She loves you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tell me a little bit of something about The Beatles by Alan Cozen. Ah, Alan Cozen. Well, Cozen is uh, a classical music critic, uh, and... He's at the New York Times, and for a long time he has been like doing the Beatle beat at the New York Times because he's sort of a Beatle nut uh, and a very, very good scholar. And he has a wonderful collection. He's a big help to all us Beatle authors out there because we all uh, sort of send off questions and say, "Can you figure this out? What does this mean?" And he'll say, "Well, I know I have two bootlegs about that, and this other bootleg here that says this." And he'll share tapes with you, and he's just a really good, you know, one of the good, one of the good guys out there helping all the Beatles scholars. And this is a book he wrote for Faden Press. Oh uh, gosh, was what like ten years ago, like 1998 or right. something like that. And it's a very good single volume. Um, uh, narrative to, uh, aimed at the general reader about, uh, you know, here's how a really heavy-duty, uh, serious music critic uh, can tell the Beatles story and tell you what's important about it all without get, getting all technical on you at all. Um, but it's, so it's a very engaging piece of prose, and it's a, if it, you have to read one single book to get the whole story in your head, this is the one I always recommend to people. I think it's kind of hard to find. I don't think it's in print anymore. Um, it's a very, very deft piece of writing. Uh, I, I continually, I go back to it, and it always impresses me when I, when I open it up because he solves certain problems of how to describe things or how to, how to uh, get through. Uh, you know, you're dealing with a very, very dense uh, activity in the 60s, and it's always hard to figure out what to choose to describe and to move through because you need it to stand for lots of different things because there's so much going on all the time. So you have to sort of be this extraordinary filter for the reader because there's so much going on and you have to really pick what you're going to describe. And he's always just really making good choices on those levels. Okay. If I recall correctly, and there's at least one occasion in your book maybe where you, you mention um, the writer Wilfred Mellers, yeah. who I think also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he 
he similarly brought a sort of uh, deep musical um, approach to the Beatles, but I, I seem to recall you you weren't you weren't that thrilled with what he had done or something. His work. Well, Mellors right. Mellors has a book called Twilight of the Gods. Right. And uh, Mellors is an old school a British uh, eccentric musicologist. I mean, there's and there's really no other kind of British musicologist. You have to sort of pass some exam about eccentricity to be musicologist. <laughs> And he was one of the first sort of serious classical scholars to take on the Beatles. And his whole notion is that we need to understand the Beatles in the classical tradition, which is, I just think, just a big laugh because they just square pegs and round holes with this guy. And, you know, so he wants the final chord of Sgt. Pepper. Um, he wants to link that E major chord up with uh, the final movement of Mahler's Fourth Symphony, where where the listener ascends into heaven, and E major is the symbolic key in, in classical terms for the, right. for the realm of heaven. And it's just really, it's just laughable. I mean, it just has nothing to do with anything that was in the Beatles' minds. And um, he writes a very entertaining and, um, you know, eccentric is the word I keep thinking. I mean, it's just this kind of bizarre on a certain level. He knows what he's talking about. He just has absolutely no history in rock and roll, and he doesn't really... He doesn't really give the Beatles credit for having a different tradition than he has. Right, and is, so, so talk about Cozen in that regard, though. Well, that's what he has. Cozen respects how the Beatles see themselves, and he understands rock history, and he doesn't try and impose a different tradition on them. Okay. Even though he is a classical, you know, he's a he's he's an, an open-minded classical thinker. Right. So he's been trained in the classical idiom, and he writes mostly about classical music. But when it comes to the Beatles, he's very sympathetic. To to their um, their tradition, their background, their history, and their idea of themselves as rock and rollers. Okay. Who you know, and the Beatles don't. I mean, it's kind of tricky territory because the Beatles don't exactly have disdain for classical music. They employed a lot of classical music musicians, and George Harrison was obviously very important to them, and he would write things down for them, and they picked his brain constantly. George, um, George Martin, you mean George Martin? George Martin. Right? Did I say Martin? You said Harrison, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> but George Martin, the producer, is a very important. Obviously, plays a very important role, and he's classically trained, and he brings a lot of classical influence into the Beatles' music, and they employ it quite, you know, they are open-minded rock and rollers. In fact, I think they had a lot more disdain for jazz than they did for classical music. Right, right. There's very little jazz on any of their records. Uh, so, uh, this, it, it, it sort of is, uh, it's not a two-way street in a lot of ways. Alan Cozen gets it. He's a two-way streeter, and the Beatles are two-way streeters, but Mellers tries to fit them into a different kind of canon, and it would, you know, it would sort of be like, you would, you know, you would take a baseball player and try and fit him into the football tradition. I mean, it's just like, well, wh you know, why? <laughs> it all come to in the end? Yeah, what's in it for me? A book. Yeah, a blooming book. Titles you have art and music of John Lennon, and there's a riot going on. Right, it's so, something else I'm not at all familiar with here. Yeah, Peter Doggett wrote um, the Lennon book a long time ago, and he wrote it under a, a pen name. I think the pen name is John Robertson. 
Okay. I forget what it is, but it's not Doggett. It's not Peter Doggett. Um, and, and it's very hard to find, and I think it's out of print, but it's a wonderful book. And it's a book that tries to take the musical Lenin, the literary Lenin, and the visual Lenin and tie them together and draw a more three-dimensional portrait. And it's full of great writing and great observations. And I got in touch with him as I was working on the Lenin biography, and he's a terrific guy. And his most recent book came out just last year, and it's called, just last spring, actually. It's 2008. And it's called There's a Riot Going On, and it's a very thick and important investigation of the relationship to rock and leftist politics and where the two merge and where they're sympathetic to each other and where they don't merge and where they're, where they're not sympathetic to each other. And it's a very, very interesting history. And, of course, you know, when you deal with, with Lenin and Lenin's sort of coming of age as a political consciousness, you're dealing with the Song Revolution in 68, and there's just a lot of controversy about that song. It caused a right. lot of controversy at the time, and there's people who still debate it. And so any, any person who's going to approach this material, you have to take that song on and deal with that matter. And uh, he does so in an especially insightful way. And uh, if you're interested in leftist politics and you know how how the rock listener was looking to the rock musician to guide them politically it's a very interesting very interesting way to approach it because the rock musicians were actually quite ambivalent about the political situation right they had their you know Lenin turned into quite a politico by 1971 but um but you know as a member of the Beatles and as somebody who was a songwriter and a recording artist, he, he did not see himself as a political leader, not for a long time. And that, you know, that he sort of moved through that and came to regret it a little bit, although I think it was a very natural progression for him. But for the most part, the, the rock stars were quite ambivalent about that. And the audience was really, really pushing them to be these political figures, and they just really didn't want that. Right, I think... Uh Grill Marcus has an early piece, um, I think, collected in his, his very first book prior to Mystery Train, where he writes about um, revolution and street fighting man sort of in tandem. And I, if I, I think he writes sort of about, you know, the ambivalence of these rock stars to the movement or whatever. I don't know if that's sort of along the lines of what you're saying about revolution. but Right. And it's very ironic because Street Fighting Man still gets listed as sort of like, well, that was the tougher, you know, that was like the really let's hit the streets and do the protest. Yeah. And, it's and always it's used not. as a soundtrack in a commercial about the 60s. Yeah. And, but, you know, the, song, the lyric itself is not. And Jagger himself was not, you know, like a, like a politico. And he veered away from that very quickly, much more quickly than Lennon. And Lennon turned out to be much more heartfelt and sincere in a way, but he, it, it sort of, it steered him in a different place aesthetically, and that's what people have trouble with, although I don't think it's, it, it's bad. He, I don't think he wrote bad songs as a political. That's generally the rap he gets, and I think there's some very good political material from him, but uh, they're two di very different stories, very different sensibilities, and what Marcus says about revolution, which I really like, is that it's you know, the lyrics are ambivalent, but the music is really raging, and there's this wonderful tension there between the ambivalence of the lyric and the absolute radical sound in the music. Right, right. The guitars themselves kind of convey something that right. oh, definitely. sort of make the lyrics not secondary, but just, yeah, they, they add a different dimension to it, I guess, or whatever. Well, I think, there's, I think there's just great irony there, and the irony is, on the one hand, he really sympathizes with the radicals. On the other hand, he's extremely committed to nonviolence. Uh, so there is that tension. And that tension was very much in the air at the time. And there were a lot of radicals who they were figuring out that they were either going to draw this line or they were going to cross that line. Okay. And that, was, that was a very important uh, principle to be uh, wrestling with in 1968. You've got um, 
You've got a biography of McCartney, just called McCartney, by Chris Salowitz. And you've also got postcards from the boys by Ringo Starr. So before you tell me about each of these books, um, you know, I know obviously you're working on the Lennon book, and you, you've talked a lot about Lennon. Um, I, I take it George Harrison, is he sort of like the fifth wheel in the Beatles as far as you're concerned or just oh I don't no, no, I, no, no I wouldn't back off describing I wouldn't describe him that way and okay. I, <laughs> I, I go I, I keep coming back and redeciding what I think about George Harrison I think I was sort of tough on Harrison to tell me why and um and I think that's an easy thing to do because he, you put him next to Lennon and McCartney and you're just bound to judge him harshly. I just think it's sort of an unfair setup, you know. And I, I've come to really admire him a lot more through the years for just how much he progressed and how much he put himself forward in that band. And you can imagine a lot of other personalities would just not have even bothered because you have Lennon and McCartney. You don't need a third songwriter. Uh, and he does actually develop into quite a good songwriter. And so that records like the White Album and Abbey Road, he's really, you know, he's really an important piece of the material just becomes much more important than it was and his contributions to revolver are great too right um, okay i think so i think that harrison is a special case and he's difficult because a lot of his solo work is really not you know just not just not good not a scan uh, that that tends to overshadow some of the accomplishments of, with the Beatles. Okay, and there's not and there's not a definitive book or I mean I wouldn't expect you to fulfill a quota and include a Harrison book just because you included other ones. But have you read any um, decent books about Harrison or No, I don't think there's a whole book. I think there's a you know and I haven't read the definitive essay on Harrison either. Okay. Not, somebody should try and tackle that. But if you're a Harrison nut, you should read I Me Mine by George Harrison. Um, but it's only you know, it's not even a hundred pages long that book it's it's fleshed out with all these drawings and lyrics and other things and the narrative is actually pretty short so right. I mean, even he didn't get a whole book out of it so okay. um, it's not to say anything you know against him I mean you really and you're on thin ice with these Beatles fans like you can't say anything anti-Beatle <laughs> But, um, you know, as a critic, it just sort of does the great stuff injustice if you say it's all on the same level. It's not all, it's not all on the same level. Yeah. And I think Harrison really would have, would have been actually very realistic about that. But um, it's, it's not that I think, it's not, you know, it's not that I think that he's not worthy of study or something like that. It's just that you just got these, you got these two giants in the room. You got to deal with those. You got to deal with them first, you know. Okay, well then, so so uh, segue from that then into uh, the Ringo Starr book, Postcards from the Boys, because he's, I mean, I, I actually do consider Ringo a giant in his own way, but he's, you know, he's not the typical definition of giant in the Lennon-McCartney mold. So well, what's the deal with that book? Well, Ringo is a, Ringo is a giant, and he's a giant because he's a, he's a rock and roll drummer who is, who has the gift of modesty. Um, and when we think of rock and roll drumming, you don't think so much of the school of less is more. But Ringo's school is less is more, and Ringo's approach is he plays the song. And so he's always giving other people space, and he's always playing, you know, as like the expert ensemble player, and not trying to dominate or show off or be anything other than doing what it, exactly it is that the song needs. Uh, you know, here's a drummer who's reluctant to take drum solos. I mean, what a gift, you know. I mean, what a great... Plus, apparently, from all the evidence and from, from this book and from all the interviews we know, this happens to be a really terrific guy. He doesn't take himself seriously uh, and is, you know, is very, very devoted to the music and was really just like the perfect fit for what the Beatles were and what they needed. Okay, so what is, what is the book, Postcards from the Well, Beatles? the book is... Uh, is it's kind of a lighthearted um, romp through all these postcards that they sent one another over the years, and it's very fun to, to trace like what they were going through and the cards they were sending each other. And he saved them all, and they just reprint them, and they're all just drawing cartoons and having fun and sending inside jokes. And there's a lot of Lennon cartoons in there that you never see anywhere else. And you know, there's these really wonderful things like uh, a couple days after they do the rooftop session and let it be. Paul McCartney sends Ringo this postcard and just says, you're the greatest drummer in the world. You know, and it's just this, it's just so sweet. It's just so sweet, you know. 
uh, and that 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 card survives. Uh, and I don't know. I just you know it's just a really fun. It just shows like how you know they just shared some really high spirits together. And and does he um, provide context where needed sometimes? Oh yeah, yeah. But it's very. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's it's not like I mean for me a biographer I don't think I use more than one or two quotes from that book it's not like a serious intense scholarly book it's a very lighthearted trip through right this is this let's just flipping through a scrapbook here uh, but it's Ringo I mean it's irresistible and some of the stuff is just so charming and so like God, we you know we were hoping it was gonna it was like that we were hoping these guys were as intimate as these cards reveal them to be and they really were you don't really how much I need you I love you all the time I never leave you So come on back to me I'm lonely as can be tell, tell me about the McCartney bio by Chris Salowitz Right, now that's a book that came out that's got to be early 80s, um, and Salowitz is one of the major British critics, and uh, he's the first guy to really take on McCartney's life seriously and do, it, and do the critical treatment, and a very good job of reporting, too. He talked to a lot of McCartney school teachers from Liverpool, um, and because he's British, he gets a lot of the cultural things right and, and understands McCartney's... Uh, roots and where he came from and what his mindset is and how it was shaped by Liverpool. Um, he's the first person to really articulate, you know, what the, the death of McCartney's mother uh, when he's 14. Uh, you know, it's just this very, obviously, very defining moment in the young McCartney's life. And he's the first one to really sort of pinpoint that as a, a key to understanding who McCartney is and and what his songwriting is all about. In a lot of ways, you know, he's only written one song about that event, and it's his, you know, his biggest song. And it's Yesterday. And it's about how he said something, you know, within a day after his mother died, he said to his dad, you know, what are we going to do for money now? Right. Which is just this horrible thing to say. And he knew it at the time. But, you know, he's a kid. But there's obviously, you know, that he would write a song about it some 20 years later. And he's obviously still felt really bad about it. I mean, it tells you a lot about McCartney. And um, in, in, in another very important way, a lot of the rest of his songwriting really runs away from this very personal, very intimate experience. It's about denial. It's about constructing a facade that will, you know, not have to deal with that. And so it's a very revealing book about, um, you know, McCartney and, and how his uh, persona was shaped. And um, it, it only goes up, to obviously, to into the early 80s, but um, it's a book that's kind of gotten gotten uh, uh, forgotten over the years, and it's really pretty important. I mean, it's very important to my understanding of McCartney. go to uh, Day John Met Paul by Jim O'Donnell, which I, I have looked at this one um, in the store. It looks like it's literally an entire book based, you know, on that whole sort of event of those two meeting, um, which which seems to me like, you know, in some ways the most, the ultimate in Beatle minutiae. Um, you know, I, that, that's just phenomenal. <laughs> you can write a book it about is, that. It is. It's the ultimate in Beatle minutiae, and it's trying to, it's a very, very interesting and extremely difficult writing challenge to reconstruct the day with all the, all the stuff that we know. And it's a very, very good job. I mean, just just as a writer, it's just like you just take your hat off to anyone who can pull something like that off because it just is, just to me, it would just feel insurmountable. Um, and... Uh, you know, I've talked with people who were sources for him in that book and who grew up in Liverpool and stuff, and they, there's great admiration for that book, even though they, they'll say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're really not, we don't really take ourselves that seriously, we're not that, you know, rosy-eyed about it, but he does actually get certain things so right that a book actually works. 
Um, and it's, you know, it is, it's the, the founding myth of these guys meeting because, you know, here is Lennon meeting McCartney and it's, you know, it's the great songwriting duo of, of the 60s of our age and, and how they met is, you know, at, at a typically, you know, at a very sort of mundane, low-scale uh, church event. Um, McCartney shows up and he hears this guy and he sees this guy and then they meet in the, in the, the church hall afterwards and then the band plays another gig that night and um, just the idea of like what were they you know what did they say you know what did, what happened how did we you know how did it all go down and he just really takes you into this very vivid description of how it might have happened and it's really quite plausible and quite it's almost like uh, it really could have happened just like this you know okay um so I mean it's yeah it's for the obsessive it's for the more obsessive fan but man it's really it's really a neat trick he pulls off there. We Um, I was I was curious uh, on your list to see the um, anthology book, um, which is obviously a compendium to the series, which was out I guess probably about ten years ago or so. Um, what, what was your reasoning for including that one? Well, it's you know you have to include it um, because there's a lot of great quotes in it, and it's the Beatles sitting down and telling their own story and. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a it's it's an unreadable book. I mean, I don't know anybody who's gotten. You don't. It's not a book that you sit and read from beginning to end. It's right. That you dip into and you go. You go looking. It's great if you're if you're um, uh, strolling for quotes. You know, if you need a quote, there's always a quote in there. And um, it, but it it's so um, it's just so voluminous and so like it's sort of like too much. It needed an editor. It needs a narrative. They're not. They're 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 often repeating stories that they themselves don't seem to be aware are not true. So there's a lot of factual information that just is like missing from the book, and they treat a lot of the conflicts very very. It's very odd. It's like well, it's many years later, and we've all forgiven each other, and this was a different time, but it was very stressful. You know, like that's what they say about the lawsuits. And it's just like oh please, I mean come on, you know, like we're grown ups now. Can you please just sort of give us the skinny about what was going on and they're very committed to um, you know upholding this myth and, and, and sort of keeping some of these stories alive and so it's an it's a interesting and worthwhile piece of work because it shows how invested the Beatles themselves are in their own myth and um, it's pretty indispensable just for that and there's, there's also this just this weird thing about this book is that there's really nothing else like it anywhere. I mean, okay. There's no, there's no book about the Grouch, about the March Brothers like this. Right. There's no book about the Duke Ellington band like this or anybody else, any other big, you know, pop act in history. There's just never been such a huge expose that's so clearly and obviously and, you know, sort of aggressively self-interested. Right, right. Like, they're not interested in telling the truth. <laughs> it's just not, that's not their agenda. Their agenda is to really, uh, you know, make that myth intact for all future generations. Well, taking off from that point, um, it's just, you know, one thing you often hear about the Beatles, and, I've, uh, you know, I've certainly shared this feeling at some points uh, myself, is just, like, you know, how much more is there to tell about the story? Um, it, I don't know, a lot of people kind of make fun of Mojo Magazine because they, they tend to put the Beatles on, like, yeah. every third or fourth issue. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, on that, just as the, the Beatles industry and where, where can it go from here? Right. Well, it's a problem. I mean, it's definitely a problem. I think if, if, if Beatles are all you've got, then you're really just hung up and, you know, I mean, you should get a clue. I mean, the Beatles are, <laughs> you know, the Beatles really do gain an authority when you, when the, when you put them in the bigger picture. So it's sort of a myth that, you know, you, you know, you can't really overstate how important they are, right? 
On the other hand, that, that, that's not really the point. The point is that they are part of a much larger continuum that is extremely, extremely interesting and fascinating and rich tapestry of popular music, and especially the story of how American popular music travels to Britain and gets retranslated and turns into something different. Um, in, you know, in 1962, it was inconceivable that a band from Britain could play rock and roll. It was absolutely inconceivable. And yet by 1962, the Beatles were probably the greatest band. And they were playing rock and roll, and they conceived of themselves as a rock and roll band. Um, and the fact that the Beatles hit it big, I like what Richard Meltzer told me. Uh, he said it was the biggest long shot of all the biggest long shots in the history of the world. Right. And it really was. So when the Beatles go on Ed Sullivan in February 64, one of the reasons that's such a powerful moment is because rock and roll is not a living thing so much anymore in people's minds. Rock and roll has had its big moment, and it has kind of dispersed into a lot of different niche markets, you know, which at the time seemed rather disparate and rather disconnected from one another. And the Beatles showed up, and they showed how connected all these different strands really were. And by doing that through their original compositions and then giving us all the arrows, all the diagrams of where all this music had come from by all of their covers, uh, both what, what were then historical covers like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, but also contemporary covers like Motown, and girl groups, uh, this became, you know, this became something that just acquired this really huge magnetic force right in the middle of pop. It was suddenly rock and roll was not just back, it was a snowball that was gathering steam and momentum every single month. And so that is such a big, intense part of the story that, you know, to say, to just focus on the Beatles alone really misses kind of the larger story. I've always been fascinated by that larger story and how they fit into history. So when people say, oh, too many books on the Beatles, it's like, yeah, they're right. But let's have a book, I mean, and this was always my goal, let's have a book that really tells that larger story. Um, now tell me why isn't so much that book. Tell me why it's very Beatle-focused, and it gets criticized for that. I think it's pretty fair criticism, because I'm really very obsessed and very sort of very, going into very intense detail on some, you know, I'm taking a microscope to all those recordings. But with the Lennon book, the goal was very different. The goal was was let's really set the stage for, you know, how, how did the British experience rock and roll history? You know, how does the young Lennon, how does he confront rock and roll? And, you know, how does, that, how does that change him? It obviously is a profound thing that happens to this kid when he first hears rock and roll. And it changes his life. And he testifies to that in many, many interviews and in, in every single possible way for the rest of his life. Rock and roll became this huge motivating force for him. And that story, the larger story, is actually really, you know, we, should, we need to pay attention to that. We need to look outside the frame a little bit more. And finally, we have uh, Love Me Do by Michael Braun, which oh, yeah. is another well, one I'm very interested in because that's um, it's an account of the very early Beatles. And if I'm not mistaken, it ends even in 64, right? Right. It's, a, it's what they used to call a quickie. And it was like this, this band was big and starting to have really big hits. So they hired this journalist to go, to, to go with them and travel with them on tour. And he churns out this book really quickly. And I think it comes out in Britain in 64. The curious thing about this guy is that he's a fantastic journalist. He writes like a dream. He gets all these great quotes of the Beatles talking backstage. Um, I mean, you know, Paul McCartney's just come from seeing this, the latest Jean-Luc Godard movie, and what does he think of it? I mean, just like fascinating stuff. And um, and it's all there. And Lennon, there's some great Lennon quotes. And when Lennon says... Um, you know, in, in the summer of 63, when, she, when they have She Loves You, which is like this big, just this huge, big moment in Britain for the Beatles that summer. And the crowds are screaming. I mean, Beatlemania is just huge. And what Lennon says is, this isn't show business. This is something else. This is not something that you move on from. This is like some, this is, you don't like shake this. This is, he's already very hip to what's going on. It's really right. kind of amazing. But the descriptions and the tone of the book, um, they're all just great. And it's kind of like you realize that, um, 
the guy probably used it as like a rough draft for the screenplay of Hard Day's Night. So it gives you like this very different, um, like like an alternative uh, novelization of Hard Day's Night before Hard Day's Night. Um, and it shows you sort of what they were trying to get and what they... They did a pretty good job of capturing in Hard Day's Night, but the book is much better. And then Michael Braun just disappears. I mean, I've, I, I have tried to find this guy. This guy just, he wrote one great book and then he vanished. Wow. And if anyone out there knows who this guy is or what, he, because this is apparent, I can't find any other book that this guy wrote. And I asked everybody if they had any idea where, where he wound up. And I'd love to talk to this guy because he got, you know, he he got this amazing story. And if the book is out of print, it's very hard to find. But go go find it used somewhere, and it's the best. It's you know, it could, you could just get away with arguing that it's the best Beatle book there is because it That's captures them at this very early stage, and they're fully formed. It's it's all there. You can just tell these guys are great. They're going to go on to do great things, and it's long before America even figures it out. You, by the way, I should mention in Tell Me Why, you do have quite a comprehensive um, bibliography. Yeah. And one book I was very happy to see in there, because it's one of those books which isn't specifically about the Beatles, but I do think it has some indispensable Beatles writing, is um, The Aesthetics of Rock. And yeah. you, you mentioned Richard Meltzer already, so yeah. talk a little bit about that. It was really fun to ring him up and talk with him as I was working on the Lennon book, because I admired that book a lot, even though... It's hard really, to understand. It's a, it's a lost in. It's a book. You know, it's a great ocean of a book that just you just have to sort of dive in and sort of swim around. But there is so much good Beatles stuff in that book um, that it's um you know it's worth what it's worth whatever. I mean, you know, it's like you you realize very quickly you're not going to be following a thread. You know, right? It's gonna you're just going to get tossed about. Um, uh, and that, but that's part of its charm, and it's also very much it's a it's a very reflective of its era. And I think he wrote this as a philosophy dissertation in 1966 or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think and so it's really just it. a madcap tour through, you know, one of the first smart guys to put pen to paper about rock culture as it was happening, and it's incredibly vivid and. Um, uh, what's the word? It's almost, it's not even very descriptive, but it's very, it's got a very vivid grasp of the ideas at play in rock and roll and how wonderfully absurd and nuanced and completely out of control the music is um, at this particular moment. And he's got a very, very quick mind, uh, and it's and it's just sort of drunk with rock and roll, and it's uh, so it's a very vivid picture of how it felt to be like, I don't know, he must have been 24, or 26, and working on his philosophy degree and being totally mesmerized by rock and roll and finding that everything that he was learning about the great philosophers actually was at play in all of these great rock and roll records he was listening to, um, and so at the time it's just a completely radical, eccentric, far-fetched notion, and it survives as like a curiosity, but if you're into it, it's just, it's deeply central, because this guy is really, he's just mixing it up with the best of them. Actually, I thought of um, one other one I'm dying to kind of ask you about. It, it obviously wouldn't be in your bibliography because it wasn't out at the time, but um, did you read the book that came out about a year ago, I think, by Dave Marsh? about? And you do mention Marsh quite a bit in your own book, um, but the book he put out about the Beatles' second album? Yeah, I haven't read that. Okay. And I've, I've, I've tried very hard to get that. Uh, it's a weird publisher. I need to go just find it and read it. I mean, I assume it's Dave Marsh, and you know, you know, you know what you're getting when you get Dave Marsh, but people forget. I mean, when I was growing up, Dave Marsh was a very important voice uh, in rock criticism, and um, I was not surprised at all that that was the Beatle album that he chose to go on about. And, right. and he wrote me a very nice note after uh, that book came out, and we 
I forget why I was contacting him, but he was very, very like, I really admire your book, and it was great using your book to write that and stuff. So I have nothing but good things to say about Dave Marsh. Okay. You, you must have had fun um, writing writing that bibliography, because I'm looking at it again, and, you know, you've, you've got, I, I don't know how many, but it looks like at least a few dozen um, entries in there, which that must have been pretty fun to put together. Well, I, you know, I always liked those, those books. Yeah, I always really liked the, some of the some of the ways people got creative with the nooks and crannies sections of a book, you know, and, and annotated bibliographies, I just think is a wonderful form. I've always really loved the, the notes that Grill Marcus wrote to the discographies and Stranded. Right, right. Those are just wonderful. I mean, some of the best stuff is in those little notes or the footnotes or the end notes to a mystery train. I mean, yeah. some of the great parts of that book are in those end notes. It's true. And, um, so, uh, you know, I always am try I mean, you're always trying to, to play with the form and figure out how to keep the reader interested. And I felt like there was, I felt like we needed to have like some serious comment on, on the, the fire hose of stuff that was out there because it's just, it's too much. And we, we have very, very few good critical guides to, okay, here's what this book does. If you want this angle, you know, look at it this way. It'd be something worth, probably worth updating. I was just going to say, do you ever see yourself updating it in a future? Well, print you know, that's, I don't know, that's an idea. That's an idea. I mean, I'm struggling with whether I even want to do a discography for the Lennon book. It's like I could just barely lift my hand up anymore. I, don't, right. you know, I just can't be bothered. It's like, please just go do your own discography, people. Yeah. But uh, plus, it's just so it's just so complicated. You have to track down all the different, you know, all the different numbers and all of exactly. Yeah. And that's like, who needs it? You know, within six months, it'll all be irrelevant because there'll be new mixes on the web that everyone will want to get. And right. So uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that. But an annotated bibliography at this point might actually be might actually be worthwhile. Of course, the other problem is that you just make enemies. You know, you have you know you say your piece about somebody and then you know they never talk to you. Yeah. So you do you get into trouble with these things too because you know I mean now there's I mean I mean, I've changed my mind about some of those books in there. You know I mean I I admire some of those books more than I let on there and I'm you know I'm. Uh, it's it's you know it's that's it's complicated there. I don't know how I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Yeah, but yeah. It, you know maybe you know maybe at some point online I'll reproduce that and sort of add notes to it or something just for kicks. Right. But, it's always complicated, as you say, when you're um, dealing with dealing with other critics more uh, so than dealing with musicians or music. Oh no! But the Brotherhood of Rock Critics are <laughs> also friendly. We're also forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, geez, I mean, Dave Marsh, he sets the standard, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't had too many fights in his life, that's No, right. no, he's so serene. It gets along with everybody. That, but that just seeps through into the writing and makes you feel good all over. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's end it on that uh, upbeat, positive note. You've got the election of Obama and the fraternity of rock critics. We're all good. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. When the sun shines, they slip into the shade.